You're listening to audio from Crossroads Community Church, located in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. If you want to learn more about C3 and what it is about, you can visit us at c3lehigh.com. And now, for today's sermon. I also want to give fair warning. I know it's already been said in the, uh, in the church announcements this morning, and we've been reiterating it every week, but um, I want to say it again, that this sermon series features mature content that is not appropriate for young ages. And so if you feel like your child is not of a uh, maturity to experience some of the mature content that we may be discussing this morning, I want to encourage you that we have an awesome kids ministry um, for sermon series like this, and they will do a great job at pouring into your students' life. So I want to uh, encourage encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, this morning, we're going to be discussing some of Rome's dark um, history as it, um, as it relates to their sexual immorality. And so I also want to give fair warning that if you come from a background of any type of um, sexual trauma, that this morning um, there may be a few triggers uh, that I want to make you uh, aware of. Again, as we start this morning, we're going to be beginning uh, by discussing some of Rome's dark um, sexual immorality. Um, one of the gods that Rome, the Roman culture served was the god of sexual immorality. I'm discussing this this morning because there's a lot of similarities between the sexual immorality of Rome and our culture, where our culture seems to be either on the same level as the Romans were with their sexual immorality, or we are heading at least in the same direction. I also want to share this this morning, this illustration um, of, like I said, a, a dark historical nature, because it also helps us understand just how much the gospel contradicts modern-day Roman culture. Just how bad was the Roman culture of perversion and sexual immorality? In Roman culture, it was viewed as a healthy practice for men to engage in sexual activity in any way, shape, or form. In Roman culture, a man could sleep with prostitutes, and when he was married, he was still considered a virgin. And even after being married, it was acceptable for men to seek sexual gratification elsewhere. Therefore, adultery could only be committed if a woman was unfaithful to man under the covenant of marriage. Prostitution was a part of the official public face of Roman life, not something hidden or in the background like it is in our culture, but prostitution was considered a societal necessity. Brothels and even temples dedicated to sexual activity was a normal practice. Even more disturbing and darker is the reality of Rome's pedophilia practice. Or pedophilia was accepted among Romans. And although the Roman Empire did not approve of the practice of homosexuality from a legal standpoint, it still was a common practice in their culture. If this culture, as we look at this culture, we have to understand that there weren't any parameters around sex. It was solely viewed as a healthy practice no matter what, so long as it was lived out rather than being pent up. And I hope by this point that you've come to hear the similarities between Romans' belief that sexuality and sexual practices, it was healthy if it was lived out. It was viewed as, you know, wrong if you held that with 
within yourself. I, I trust that by this point, you hear the similarities in the language and in the way that they talk about these detestable, despicable practices in modern day America where we believe that there shouldn't be any parameters around this, that it should be lived out, and that it's wrong to hold this desire within us. There was a cultural belief that society needed sex just as much as they needed food or water, that sex needed to be lived out and expressed no matter how horrific the practice was, it needed to be lived out according to their belief. And when we read Rome's obsession with anything that dealt with sexuality or sex, when we read their obsession, we have to understand it, or at least come to the conclusion that Rome worshipped the god of sex, that this was an idol in their culture. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does this create a healthy culture? And I believe that you could interview people of today in modern times, you could interview them and come to the conclusion that this is not a healthy culture. For example, I believe today that you could interview women that come from a lifestyle of prostitution and you will quickly come to the conclusion that it is not healthy. I believe that you could interview those who've experienced sexual trauma in their life and they will tell you a story of how the practices of Rome that, that doesn't lead to peace and prosperity and thriving, but it leads to brokenness. I believe that you could interview a family that has been broken and dismantled by adultery and they will tell you that these practices do not create a healthy society and we're living in a day and age when it's being preached over and over and over and over again, that an individual living out uh, their, their sexual perversion is necessary and healthy and leads to a healthy society. And as I just stated, you can interview these individuals of these various categories, and I promise you that they will come to the exact opposite conclusion. And I could go on with the examples, but I trust by now that you understand the point that Rome is a broken culture enslaved. They're not freed. They're enslaved by their perverse desire, and their desire never satisfies them, which leaves them more broken than before. My point is this. Roman culture was enslaved by the master of sinful desire. Roman culture was enslaved by the master of sinful desire. It was not a free, thriving culture. It was one that was enslaved. Right now, our culture believes the same ideology, that if you have a desire, that so long as that desire is there, it is who you are. It is your identity, and it must be lived out. And here we have Paul Stepping into this culture, seeing all of this perversion, and he still teaches a doctrine that is radically different. We still teach a doctrine that is radically different from culture. And thank God for that because it only makes sense that the doctrine that needs to save us would be far different than what we are naturally drawn to in regards to our sinful desires. Paul teaches 
the fact that any sexual intimacy outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is considered sin. Why is this considered sin? Because sex out of marriage between a man and a woman causes damage. Whereas God's way always administers wholeness, healing, peace. My point is this. Human flourishing takes place when we do things God's way. If we want to experience prosperity, if we want to experience wholeness, if we want to experience blessings, we don't find this outside of God's parameters. Human flourishing only happens within the parameters that God, our Creator, has set in place for His creation, us. In addition to these fundamental teachings... Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 23. Again, that's Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 23. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance." You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. He goes on to say this in verse 19. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. But what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's discuss some of Paul's points here in Romans chapter 6. The first point that Paul makes is this, only in absolute devotion to God do we understand our identity in him and the power that we've been given through him. Only in our absolute devotion to God do we understand our identity in Him and the power that we've been given 
through him. Let's jump back to verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And I want us to underline this portion of scripture as well. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Picture this. Paul is teaching an out-of-control culture that is only controlled by their sinful desires that they're taught and they live out that those desires, uh, there's no controlling them. Again, it's who you are. But then Paul steps into this teaching and he says, you can take those desires and put them under the lordship, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't just, don't just let sin happen. Don't just let sin reign. For some, sin is just an everyday occurrence. Being obedient to the flesh is all that they know. And therefore, sin rules and reigns in their thinking, in their actions, in their words. There's no effort to combat this. There's no effort to fight this. Sin is just kind of an everyday occurrence. But then Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't let sin reign in your life. Don't just be obedient to it. But there's power when we come under the authority of Jesus that those desires come under his authority as well. Scripture would also teach us that struggling with sin is a very real thing. You're going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. But here's what Paul is saying. We have been given the power to resist. We don't have to let sinful impulses call the shots in our lives. This is a revolutionary teaching to the Romans. All Rome has known is being enslaved to their impulses. All Rome has known is saying, you know what, it's, it's better that we live out these desires, these sinful desires in us. That's what freedom and liberation is. And they, they come under this belief and they live it out to only find that their cravings are never satisfied, that brokenness reigns. And there's this, this misunderstanding and belief that this is who I am, that I have to be obedient to what the flesh, what my sin wants. And Paul steps in the midst of this and says all of that can come under the control of Jesus Christ. That we no longer have to live those things out, that we're no longer bowed to those things. And Paul even says the consequences aren't even, they don't damage us any longer because rather than being obedient to sin, we're obedient to righteousness and there's no consequences to that. The consequences are holiness and purity and wholeness. You and I have been given the power to resist. We don't have to let sinful impulses determine the courses of our lives. Once you serve Jesus with all that you are, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, you are not out of control with sin as you once were. Once you are plugged into the power source of Jesus, we can stop being servants enslaved to sin. This teaching changes everything. Paul says, 
those sayings that we find in, even now here in modern culture, Paul says the sayings of Rome, whenever they would say, I have cravings that must be satisfied, when they would say things like, I can't help it, it's just who I am, the same sayings that we encounter in our culture now, it's just who I am, I have to live this out, I have to do this, Paul says it's not so, but there's a better way. Paul says with Christ, you don't have to do any of this. You don't have to be out of control. You don't have to be enslaved. With Christ, you can understand that you are called to be holy, called to be set apart, called to be whole, called to be under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, that you can decide to not let sin rule and reign in your life. When you and I devote all of ourselves to Christ, our mind, our body, and our will to the cause of Christ, we come to understand this principle, church. True freedom is not freedom to sin. True freedom is freedom from sin. True freedom is not freedom to sin. True freedom is freedom from sin. To no longer have to sin, to no longer allow sin to call the shots, to no longer allow sin to determine the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act, is an incredible gift given to us through Christ Jesus. Let me put it this way. Because of Jesus' justification, we can therefore have sanctification. You and I can have holy living. There's freedom that comes with holy living, set apart living. And this reality of the freedom that we gain by being free from sin, this reality that I'm no longer bound, I have seen this reality settle in the hearts of the most intimidating men to only cause them to get choked up and break. I'm reminded of the story of a, of a man named Bob who... He used to be a part of a, uh, a motorcycle gang, and it was a part of his identity. It was a part of who he was at the time, and he tells his testimony with a little bit of shame, and understandably so. He talks about, I mean, just horrendous sins that he had committed in his life. He was once a part of a huge uh, a network of distributing cocaine on the entire East Coast side of the United States. And his job in this motorcycle gang, this motorcycle club, as they would call themselves, was he was what was called an enforcer. And an enforcer's job meant that if there was a problem, he would go and take care of it. If there was somebody that he needed to go uh, collect money from. He was the debt collector. He would go and by any means necessary make sure that that person paid up. He tells stories of fights and stabbings that he has experienced. He tells stories of drug abuse that you couldn't even imagine and he was wrapped up in this life. But then Jesus got a hold of him. And as he talks about encountering Jesus and how Jesus 
has freed him from all of that. He's, he's, he tells this beautiful testimony. He said, you know, I was, I was freely sinning and I thought that that was freedom. And he talks about how it just destroyed his life. And he found Christ in a jail cell. And he talks about how he began to just weep when he encountered Christ. Why would this man weep? Because he came to understand something. He experienced the destruction that freedom to sin brings, and he experienced the reconstruction that freedom from sin brings. When we devote all of ourselves to Christ... We can experience this freedom. This is Paul's point. Devote all of yourself so that you can experience this kind of fruit. My concern for the church today is that we have many who are saved, but very few who are free. We have many who who have come to know God, but they're still not free from the sinful past that they've come from. An example of this would be like the Israelites. We've used this example before that the Israelites were saved from slavery. They were saved from the oppression of Egypt. But although they were saved, they were still not free. They still had this sinful captive tendency that led them into more idol worship. And if you read through the Old Testament, you can see that when they get it, they get it. They serve the Lord. And there's this constant battle where they have an enslaved mentality that constantly pulls them away from the favor of God. And they pay dearly for their sinful actions. Although God saved them from Egypt, they still were not free. And my concern is that that is a feeling felt by many Christians today that you come to church and you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and yet you are still bound. Can I tell you that with the power through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can not only be saved, but you can also experience freedom. And all Paul is saying is he's saying, devote your whole self, your mind, your body, your will to his cause, his purpose and what enslaved you, you can be free from. Revolutionary teaching in Rome that also relates to modern day America. The second point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 6 is this. We can exchange the master of sin for the master of righteousness. We can exchange the master of sin for the master of righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, that you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to 
righteousness. So let's process this verse together because I understand that there's, again, there's a temptation here that Amer- as Americans, we, we are tempted to think in one direction. And that direction is this, that often when we hear the word slavery, what we picture as America's shameful, demonic, oppressive heritage. And that's how we interpret the word slavery. But please understand that that is not how Paul is using this word slave. During this time in Roman history, there were two categories of slavery. There was oppressive slavery, and that was often felt by those that lost a battle to Rome. Rome would come, and and, and Rome would conquer a nation, and therefore they would take that nation as their slaves, their servants. That was category one of oppressive slavery, but then there was category two. And category two of slavery was that it was somebody who willfully uh, devoted themselves to slavery. Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody devote themselves? Well, during this time, they would willfully devote themselves to a master in exchange that their needs would be taken care of. For example, they would become the servant to someone in exchange for housing, food, and in many cases, there was also financial compensation. You can also look at it this way. Rather than a, a slave, they were much of a house servant, a butler, a maid, if you will. This is important to understand because Paul, throughout this scriptural passage, he's describing two very different kinds of masters in two very different kinds of slavery. The first is the kind of slavery that's oppressive, that comes in and takes you captive, that conquers you. This would be the master of sin. The second category is the kind of slavery that's more of a service that you willfully submit yourself to because you know that the master is good and that he will provide for you. But nevertheless, they are the boss and they are in charge of you. This is what it is to be a slave to righteousness, a slave to Jesus, Paul refers to this type of slavery, free-willed slavery, when he says, you have come now to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. It's claimed your allegiance. Paul is insinuating that you've given yourself to this cause, this master. What is Paul's point here? Why does he say that you are either a slave uh, to sin or a a slave to uh, Jesus? And why does he put it in this kind of language? What is Paul's point in using this kind of illustration? Well, Paul's point is first this. Paul says Jesus is either your master or sin is. There's no neutral ground. There's no in-between. And another way of making Paul's point or another way to say it is like this. Jesus is the good master and the good master is either leading you or the tyrannical, oppressive master of sin is destroying you. 
Again, Paul is making a point that Jesus, the good master, is either leading you, ruling over you for your benefit, or the tyrannical, oppressive, destructive master of sin is destroying you. Romans chapter 6, verse 20 through 21. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And I can't help but feel like Paul is adding in a little bit of humor here. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And he goes on to make the point, almost making a joke, what benefit did you reap? And I, I feel like, this, that again, we have a lot in common with Paul in this scripture passage in modern day America because there's so many out there that see righteousness as an enslavement, that, that, that there is no benefit. You know, why do you go to church? Why do you commit yourselves to these things? Why do you live so differently? Why do you dedicate yourself to God's moral law? And there's just this, this view that as if Christian living is oppressive. And Paul is saying, yeah, you weren't a slave to these good things, but what was the result of that choice? Ironically, destruction. And again, I just see so many parallels here because the world looks at Christianity, or excuse me, Christian living as oppressive and freedom, and, and oppressive from freedom, excuse me, and they look at it as if like there's no good fruit from that. But Paul says, on the contrary, he says, when, when you and I aren't dedicating ourselves to righteousness, there's no freedom. He says, as a matter of fact, the only fruit that comes from that is death and destruction. So who's really enslaved to this? Paul goes on. And he's teaching the Roman church something. He says, in this scriptural passage, he's saying, do you remember when you were under the lordship of sin? How did following that unmerciful, cruel master, Satan, turn out for you? Nothing but shame. And if you weren't feeling shame, you were experiencing death and destruction. And I've met too many people who have testimonies that only validate Paul's point. And it's often the testimony that starts out with, back before I knew Christ. And typically after those words are spoken, what comes out? Shame. It's the talk of shame, of who I used to be, what I used to be like, the burdens that I used to carry, what my destructive life looked like before Christ. And talk about Paul, quoting Paul's scripture where he says, uh, those, quote unquote, those things that result in death. And he doesn't mean that figuratively. He means sin literally leads to literal death. And I'm sure that there's many of us in this sanctuary today that, again, you and I can validate Paul's point because we know friends or family members that have, have allowed sin to reign in their life, and the fruit of that decision is they've become addicts, 
Or maybe we've known those who have overdosed, or maybe we know those whose, life have been, whose lives have been impacted because of a drunk driver. Paul is speaking literally here when he says the fruit of that master in your life, it's one of two things. It's either shame or it's destruction, and there's just so much irony that we live in a day and age where culture views living for Christ as oppressive. And I just can't help but feel like I, I, I look at that and I'm like, if you only knew the freedom that we experience. Paul says the fruit flowing from that sinful master is death. And if it's not death, it's only shame. But then there's this other master. There's this second category. Romans chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit that you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin, the only thing that sin pays us is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the fruit of this master, Jesus? What's the fruit of following God? He says the fruit of this master is holiness, Holiness is living according to God's standard. Holiness is sobriety. Holiness is having and carrying peace. Holiness is wholeness. Holiness is not being bound to sinful desire to the point to where sinful desires are controlling our lives. It's freedom from that. Holiness is living without the searing pain and consequences of sin. Paul says the fruit of committing ourselves willfully to this good master who provides for us, who watches out for us, the fruit of this is this kind of living, this kind of lifestyle holiness. And as if to say it only gets better from here, Paul says even after death, you have eternal life. That's the consequence of living for Jesus. When I think on a personal note of how good of a master God is, I think of a time when Kylie and I, when we were first married, we got married very young. And I think of this time where we were newer in, in marriage. And just a few years into our marriage, you know, we, my wife was, was pregnant with Cadence. And I remember this specific moment so vividly where this moment was the perfect contrast between living for God allowing him to be the master in our lives, allowing him to be Lord in our lives, or allowing sin, Satan, to be the master of our life. This moment, I remember it was such an illustration of Romans chapter 6 for my life. I remember Kylie and I, like I said, we were, we were newly married, pregnant with, with Cadence, and 
I remember we were sitting around this bonfire with friends of ours, and it was just one of those beautiful, picture-perfect evenings. And I'm sure that many of you have had that kind of evening where just it's one of those times where you just kind of sit back and go, life is good. We were just at peace. The Lord was leading us into an incredible season of life, parenthood. Parenthood's incredible. And I remember us sitting there and I, we were just laughing with friends and having conversation. And I remember pulling out my phone and checking out social media and close friends of ours were uploading pictures. A lot of different friends of ours were uploading pictures that they were all at the same party. And I remember sitting there with Kylie and we're going through these pictures. I'm like, look at this. And I said it out of just broken heartedness for friends of ours that we loved very much. And it just, the pictures were just, to Paul's point, shameful. And he just looked and it was embarrassment. It was chaotic. There was no peace represented in these pictures. And I knew that the next day that those individuals would be waking up in beds full of regret. Most likely feeling the consequences of drinking, therefore feeling a hangover. Trying to put the pieces back together on what exactly they did the night prior or who they shared the bed with. Worries, I can only imagine that there would be worries of sexually transmitted diseases. And there's all these consequences to their decisions. And I sat there with my wife, God's way, in an atmosphere of peace, knowing that my wife and I were devoted to one another, knowing that the next morning that there would be no regrets, but only pride and joy knowing that the season that God was leading us in was incredible, sharing the company of good, wholesome friends, knowing that the next day, again, there would be no regrets, there would only be peace. And I just had this feeling in that moment, that that moment, that time was provided by God because we chose to be obedient to his righteousness, his way of doing things, that that moment was the fruit of those decisions to commit ourselves to Christ. I can't emphasize it enough that there was no fear of death. There's no fear of shame. But there's only still to this day the memory of goodness and holiness, and wholeness. And you cannot put a price tag on that. You cannot purchase that anywhere. The only way that you and I 
can have more memories. And I know that those kind of memories are represented in this room today. I know that. But I just want to remind the church that the only way that you and I can have more memories like that is not by buying more stuff, not by looking at the other master and contemplating. I wonder if he will provide for me the same thing. He won't. The only way that you and I can have that is by committing ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ in mind, body, spirit, in will, and saying, God, I'm going to do it your way. That's how you and I have this kind of fruit. What else does Paul teach us here as the worship team makes their way to the platform? What else does Paul teach us here in this passage? First, Paul teaches us that only Jesus is a good master. Only Jesus is a good master. He provides. His ways are better. His love is borderline indescribable. I think of in Psalms where he's referred to as the good shepherd, that he looks out for us, that he watches over us, that he provides for us, that when everything else is chaotic, that he leads us by streams and makes us lie down in green pastures. And what that scripture means is that even in the most chaotic times, he'll give us peace, he'll give us joy. That's Jesus. Only Jesus is the good master. The other point that Paul teaches us here only Jesus can conquer the old master. Only Jesus can conquer the old master. The old master of sin. He'll show up time and time again. Satan will show up in your life time and time again. And he will demand your allegiance. He will demand your compliance. But Jesus, our good shepherd, the good master, he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to say no. Paul says that you and I have a choice to follow either master but know that both choices that both choices determine the course of your life which will ultimately commit you to the consequences of that choice the consequences of sin paul says death destruction and shame the consequences of righteousness Paul says, holiness and eternal life, the choice is yours. Although, and I just want to reiterate, although we willingly choose to follow Jesus, he still demands our obedience. Again, sometimes when we hear that you and I get to choose Jesus on our own, we somehow think that you know, he, he's too good to tell me what to do. He's so good that he will tell you what to do because his ways are better. He's not oppressive, but he still demands our obedience. It's what Paul talks about when he says, are we under the law 
as in the law of the Old Testament that often crushes us? No, he says Jesus has paid our penalty. But does that mean that we keep on sinning as if he never went to the as if he went to the cross just so that we could do whatever we want, live however we want? And Paul says that would be foolish. Of course not. And that truth still stands today. Although Jesus is the good master, he still requires our obedience. He gets to call the shots in our lives. But I promise you that he's such a good leader that following his leadership, it's incredible. It's incredible. We began this service by talking about how demonic and broken the culture of Rome was. And Paul brings these incredible messages to Rome, an enslaved by sin culture. And he teaches this culture about the good master and how you can be set free from the oppressive master and serve willfully the good master. And what is the result of Paul bringing these incredible gospel messages to such an enslaved and broken culture? What is the result? Let's look to history for a moment. Centuries later in Rome, centuries later in Rome, they would go from the horrible, demonic, dark culture that we described at the beginning of the service to this. Christianity would become the official faith of Rome. Rome would go on to value marriage just as God has defined marriage. Completely they would redefine sexual morality so that it would align with the Word of God. The Christian ethic would become the mindset, so much so that when legislating laws, they would be written in such a way that they would make sure that they honored God and old laws were rewritten so that they would honor God. The Roman Empire would put an end and criminalize things such as prostitution, infanticide, and other practices that devalued humanity. And we would see a culture turn away from paganism and turn towards the cross of Jesus Christ. How did this happen? Historians and scholars would look at this account and say, if it didn't happen, I never would have believed that it could. How did this culture, this demonically influenced, oppressed, enslaved culture, how would this empire turn so drastically? It's actually quite simple. The New Testament church lived scripture. People saw it lived out. And Christians taught it. The evidence in following Jesus was found in the fruit. 
the evidence of serving Jesus and how good it was. And again, this wasn't an easy process. This didn't happen. Rome did not consider themselves a Christian empire until somewhere around 300 AD. It was a long process, but it did happen. Culture would see the love of Christians. Culture would see the love of Christ through the New Testament church by living out Scripture and teaching Scripture. Change came by the church ministering to the culture. And church, that's what we need to do. We have to live this out in such a way that we look for opportunities to teach others, not in an oppressive way, being oppressive to those under the the title of, you know, I'm just trying to preach. I'm just trying to be biblical. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that when that friend, when that loved one, when that family member makes a comment about how they've been struggling, teach the word of God in that moment. When you have a coworker who talks about their marriage and the difficulties that they're facing, take the opportunity in a loving manner to teach just like Paul did about a loving master and how his ways are better. Teach the word of God, but also live by the word of God. Culture's not going to believe that it can be set free if Christians are saved but not set free. And it's not a matter of if you and I can be set free. It's not a matter of if, Pastor Donnie, is it possible? Yes. What determines this is if you and I are willing to say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. See, when somebody lords over you, they get to call the shots. They get to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is holy, what is unholy. That's what God does. He's God. He gets to determine those parameters. And I'm telling you, those parameters are beautiful because they allow us to flourish. I want to encourage you today, church. The sinful behavior in your life, it can stop. The patterns, the behavioral patterns, the attitude patterns in your life that are destructive, that cause turmoil between husbands and wives and parents and children, those attitudes and mentalities and perspectives that bring destruction to your life, they can be changed. They can be broken. The life choices that you and I slip into making that don't bring honor to God, but they bring shame to us, that bring those moments in our lives where we look back on and we say, I wish I would have handled that better. I let my attitude, I let my temper get the best of me. Or those times where you and I aren't joyful because we're so consumed with the negative, but we're making the choice to live in that depravity. That can be broken. That can be restored. Our world needs to see that sin 
can be stopped. And it starts by you and I committing not just a part of us, not just one area of our lives, but it starts with you and I committing all that we are to Jesus. And it is an easy trade. There's no in-between these two masters. We're either serving an oppressive, abusive master or we're serving Jesus, our good shepherd, our provider, where the fruit is holiness and sanctification because of his justification on the cross. It's an easy trade. And our world needs to see this. You and I need to make sure that Jesus is the master in our life. Pastor Donnie, does that mean that, you know, I'm not going to face challenging times? You are. But his word says that he's going to take those challenging times. He's going to take our mistakes. He's going to take our failures. They're going to be redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And he's going to use those moments for our benefit, for our growth, so that we can experience holiness and sanctification. You and I need to make sure that Jesus is the master in our life for our sake and others. Church, would you stand with me this morning as we close out in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that for those who are here today that have been struggling, it's felt like they've been serving two masters and your word says no one can serve two masters. It's felt like they've been teeter-tottering, seesawing between a sinful master and righteousness. Lord, I pray for that individual. Help them in this moment with the power of the Holy Spirit to commit themselves, all of themselves to you. Lord, I look forward to the testimonies in the future that are going to come out of today's service of those who experience the fruit of you being the master in our lives. Lord, would you help us to live in obedience and accordance to your word, understanding that there's no better way, that any other way outside of living for you is a counterfeit that ultimately leads to shame or death. Lord, help us to realize that in moments of temptation, that through the power of the cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are able to resist the devil. And as your word says, he flees, he runs. Lord, help us to commit ourselves wholly, all of us, to you. Father, I pray that we would, in, in committing ourselves to you, that we would therefore see that the old master has been conquered by you, our victor. 
So God, as we go from this place today, may we live out scripture. May we live this thing out. May we live this relationship, our faith out in such a manner that it is a witness to the world. But God, we also know that that's not enough to reach the world because you said to go and preach the word. How, how would they hear if no one has told them? You've not only called us to holy living, not only for ourselves and as a witness, but you've called us to preach the word. So God, help us in moments where family members or friends or coworkers where opportunities come up of, of brokenness and we see you as the answer. Help us in that moment to teach, to preach, just like Paul in the midst of the most, uh, arguably the most demonically influenced culture that was just so oppressed, just like Paul stepped into that culture and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord Jesus, to step into the American culture and still preach the gospel of Jesus. When those moments are presented, may we not back down, but may we charge ahead, not in an oppressive, abrasive way, but in a loving teaching manner. Jesus, help us to live this out and teach it to others. Now, Lord, would you go with us until we meet again? Protect us, watch over us, lead us. And I pray that we would be obedient to your ways, fully submitting ourselves to you. In Jesus' precious and holy name, we ask this. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you as you go with the Lord. He's going with you, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday. God bless. This has been an audio recording from Crossroads Community Church. If you'd like to get in contact with us or learn more about us, you can follow us on social media at C3Lehigh or email us at info at C3Lehigh.com. We'd love to hear from you.